Welcome back to day two, hour two, or hour seven, however we're counting it. Lots to talk about in the first hour there, James. Absolutely. I'm James Green. This is Alex Fullick. And this hour is brought to you by Stone Road, a firm that aims to reduce corporate suffering by helping companies identify, prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. A huge thanks to Stone Road for being one of our featured sponsors across both days of the broadcast. Alex, as you can tell in the background here, it's break time at CRT. Uh, my heart was broken that there are not any blueberry muffins over there, so I'm not sure what I'm going to eat today. No. Danish, fueled, lots of Danishes. I, I did have some Danishes fueled by uh, sugar, and I should turn our on-the-air sign on. We almost had our first our first uh, disruption, which would have been fun. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that would have got me one step closer to winning the bet. That would have been my fault. Uh, a member of the staff here was about to walk on screen, but it didn't happen. So we've got a lot to discuss this hour. We also have Thursday Thoughts at 1130. We're going to do that live, and you're going to watch me and film it while I'm doing it. It's kind of like Thursday Thoughtsception. Yeah. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we're going to go. We've got some uh, hopefully great things to talk about this hour. Alex and I think they're great. Hopefully you'll join us. First up, uh, you had a question here. Actually, the first thing I want to say is, you know that introduction for Stone Road? Yes. It feels so weird to hear somebody else say, say that, it. considering I I've said it about <laughs> over 500 times, 520 times now. For, for shows. It feels so strange to hear someone else say it. Uh, I will say it's embarrassing for me that I don't know it <laughs> by heart now and I have to read it off the uh, teleprompter off screen. But I think it's kind of cool that someone else, your brand, your brand is growing, your company is growing. Uh, you know, pretty soon people will be asking for Stone Road black t-shirts. Uh, we found out over the break, Alex is a big fan of 80s Yes. Rock music, flock of seagulls. <laughs> I said journey. So I think we I, should I have we should have like world tour, Stone Road World Tour t-shirts. <laughs> and on the back, it's every conference that Alex went to. But well, we need year. we need sponsors. We'll do that with Stone Road and Illuminate. All right. So we'll there you go. <laughs> uh, if you're out there and you're wondering if you should advertise with us, one, the answer is yes. And two, <laughs> if you're wondering if you should sponsor the Stone Road spoof World Tour concert t-shirts? The answer to that is also yes. You know what? I'd be interested in having one of those. I really would. <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun. All right, and all well, the different conferences we go to. Something for our, our team to work on next year. The pipeline of things we're working on keeps growing is fun. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about, Alex, you had uh, mentioned a topic. Are we focusing too much on standards and regulations to drive our programs? And the second part of that question I thought was really interesting. Um, it might help if I read the right read. So we're going to go with that one. My apologies. Are we focusing too much on standards and regulations to drive our programs rather than developing something that's fit for purpose? And I promise we will come back to the first topic after the second topic, <laughs> since I read the, the wrong line there? Well, it, shorter answer is yes. Uh, I, I, it, it seems as though we're, we are 
giving two conflicting messages. We're telling organizations, you know, you've got to develop something fit for purpose. And then we're turning around saying, follow your, uh, get an ISO standard or some other standard certification. Well, sometimes how you do that is different. You know, we're, we're all, all going to do something different. So it seems strange that we're saying, you know, you want something fit for purpose. Do something that works within your organization, but follow this standard. Well, they mean that standard, not every part of it, and the way they want me to do it fits with my organization. And sometimes I find that really conflicting. And unfortunately, a lot of leadership, because they don't have a lot of knowledge about business continuity or resilience or emergency management, disaster recovery, whatever you want to call it, will just look to a standard or a, uh, a regulation as just follow that. That's what we need. That's, that's what we should do. And then that can cause, I don't think they really understand some of the things that go with that. The internal auditing, the external auditing, the, the, uh, the, the time it takes to perform gap analyses and all these kinds of things. So sometimes it causes a lot of confusion. And I think if organizations just focus on what it is they need first, they'll have something that works better for them. Yeah, you know, I want to share, and this is not just because we had Chloe on as our last last guest, but I want to share maybe my journey with standards and guidelines for some context. So when I first got into this industry, uh, like most of our colleagues, I didn't know what business continuity was. And all of a sudden I was in business continuity. So like all of us, you look to external parties, you look to groups and organizations to help you understand. So the very first certification I ever had was my CBCP from the Disaster Recovery Institute International, so certified business continuity professional. The CBCP is framed around the 10 professional practices that Chloe mentioned. And for me, as someone new who knew nothing, uh, and you might argue I still know nothing, but at the time, professionally knowing nothing, having the 10 professional practices was a great structure for me. They were some good uh, guardrails. Well, don't, don't get me wrong. I think people, you know, there is still value in all that stuff. Yeah, but for me, that was the starting point. That wasn't the end point of my journey of how I feel programs should learn, uh, run, but I had to learn from somewhere. To your point, though, I think the mistake that a lot of organizations and particularly a lot of our professionals make is that framework, those guidelines, those good practice guidelines become sacrosanct, right? Moses delivered these frameworks from on high, and you must always rigidly follow this, and it works for every company. It's a panacea. There's no checklist you can follow that you're magically resilient, every community, every family, every organization. So to your point where I see it, you know, these frameworks, these structures, and even the regulatory, we now have the Bank of England has an operational resilience standard, which is going into effect. We saw a lot of people fighting about that in London. Uh, APRA, which is the Australian something, something, something. I'm not even (laughs) gonna pretend, my apologies has an operational resilience standard 
that was open for comments through last month, and that'll go into effect in a few years. The uh, monetary, monetary MSA, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, has an operational resilience guideline. When you take some of these best practices, when you take these loose roadmaps and now say, this is how it will be for everyone, then like you said, you're managing and you're building your program towards a standard. And I find that very dangerous. So your question at the top of the hour was, are we focusing too much on these standards and regulations to drive our programs? Absolutely we are. Our, uh, if you're a for-profit company, what the mission of your company should drive your program. If you're a nonprofit, the mission statement and value of your program should drive your program. That should always be your number one driver. Mm -hmm. I get questions all the time about how do we get a seat at the table? How do we remain engaged with management? You need to have your program aligned with why your organization exists in the first place. And uh, quite often when I'm brought in as a consultant to help turn a program around, more often than not, it's here's the purpose of the business. Here are regulatory standards and our programs aligned over here. I sat with uh, an executive team recently and they said, you know, everything we do here with our program has nothing to do with minimizing and mitigating risk. So why do yeah. we do this? And I said to them, I have no idea why you do this. Yep. So, and I think that's the fallacy we get comfortable with. If we check these 20 boxes, we're compliant, but that doesn't necessarily mitigate risk. That doesn't make us more resilient. And I think sometimes we, we focus and we argue so much in our profession around terminologies, around standards. If I have one more person ask me if business continuity and resilience compare and contrast, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm not a student in university anymore. I don't want to write any more essays anymore. That's not the focus. I want people focusing on what strengthens the resilience of my organization? What mitigates risk in my community? And we all have very different paths. We spoke about yesterday how a company with a back office, primarily cubicle, cube farm, function is very different than a retail organization. We have a lot of emergency managers at this conference. Yes. Their focus is very different than, you know, how do I keep processing checks? Theirs is how do we save lives? So what makes them resilient? What makes a fire department resilient compared to the franchise of my new uh, first love, Tim Hortons, should be very different. <laughs> Well, it's like I said yesterday, you know, self-awareness. Start resilience is self-awareness. Start there, and then you can actually adapt, become adaptable to what you need. And when it comes to standards and regulations, well, then the standard or the regulation is saying I need to do this or have this. How I do it is up to me, and how I address that is up to me and my organization and it may not be the same way for everybody i may do my own thing but those 10 um, uh, 
professional practices that Chloe mentioned and you, you referenced, that's a great starting point for yes. people. And I did the same things you did. I looked at those 10 best practices. I soaked them up because there wasn't any very much else out there when, when I started. So I soaked it up. But as you start going from different employers, different clients, you realize that, hey, you know, this, the same framework doesn't adapt perfectly to every organization. And that's when you start learning some of these new tricks and these new ways of doing things. And I think if you do just focus on a standard or a, a, or a guideline or whatever that you want to call them, then you get pigeonholed. And as your organization changes, grows, you merge or you, uh, you, know, you have an acquisition, people leave, come and go, you don't have the plans and the processes in place to actually adapt to those changes that are going on. And again, you know, people often misunderstand when I rant about regulatory requirements. I'm not saying ignore them. I'm not saying <laughs> fail a regulatory audit just to take a stand uh, and stick it to the man. I have worked in a lot of financial institutions, I've, and I understand. If you fail a regulatory audit as a bank, you can lose your chart. You can lose investor confidence as a financial institution. You can lose customers. You can go out of business. So by no means am I saying or am I ever advocating, you know, just do whatever and management will take care of it. First thing that's going to happen if you're the head of business continuity management and your program massively fails an audit, uh, you are going to be, what do they say when someone leaves a job and it's not their decision that James is now pursuing other opportunities, other opportunities. Or they're you promoted be, to the side. <laughs> yeah. You will be exited out. But what I am advocating for is the regulatory requirements, these standards that are issued by governments, yes, you have to incorporate them in certain industries, but that is the minimum that you should be doing. That's not the maximum. When you have a, a program that's just existing for the sake of compliance, you're going to get in trouble when something happens in the real world, yeah. which always happens. So certainly... I want you to work with those authorities, those agencies, help try and improve and strengthen and change those laws. Uh, but I'm by no means a business continuity anarchist <laughs> saying burn the system down, do whatever you want. But you got to be doing more than that. So to, to what you said at the top of the hour, Alex, these standards and regulatory requirements, while necessary in many industries, should not be driving your program. There's a lot of ways to meet regulatory requirements and still be thoughtful about what you do. Uh, an easy example that I can see of, I know a lot of programs that are very, uh, organizations that are very resilient and they get in trouble in an audit because they don't have documentation. And so I'm not saying, let's start cranking out 300 pages of documentation. Oh. Good. But the number one thing I see organizations do is you have incredibly robust business continuity and resilience strategies. Let's just capture some of that on paper and give that to an auditor and give that yeah. to a regulator. 
those are very simple things you can do to be, you know, in compliance with laws and regulations and truly in the spirit of mitigating risk. Yeah. At the end of the day, who's, whose risk are you addressing and whose need are you addressing? Theirs or yours? Because if a disaster happens, do they come to your rescue? No, they look at you going, why don't you have what, what you need? Why, why haven't you done all this stuff? So it, those regulations and standards, they're great guidelines and they, you know, they can help you in many ways. But at the end of the day, you've got to build what suits you. It's like building a house. Exactly. If you built a house or I built a house, yeah, they're going to have walls and a roof, but they're going to look different because I'm going to build it to what suits my need. You're going to build it to what suits your need. But both of us will have met all the codes needed by set out by the city and safety standards and things like that. But they're going to be different. Now I'm kind of curious. I want to know what would be in your house. <laughs> so uh, if you're still with us around 2.30 today, we might have to revisit that topic. But it reminds me, Another organization I work with, uh, recently new a customer, their, their business continuity and resilience and risk professionals were very proud. They said every audit we've ever had, regulatory, internal audit, external audit, we have never had a major finding ever. Okay, that's pretty cool. We sit down and we talk to management and they say, we have lost all confidence in this program. <laughs> because we don't understand how the program helps us strengthen our day-to-day -day processes. That's, the, to me, the best example of that giant disconnect where we've never had a finding. That's great. But management says, not so what, but and also what. It's not enough. If you want to be focused on audit, you should be in the audit group. Yeah. But that's a very different line of work. Yeah. I see, I would be suspicious if there was an audit and nothing was found. It's like, well, then that just means you've probably done a tick box exercise and you just have all this stuff that suits audit. But you don't have any issues. Are you sure? You know, everything's going to work just fantastic. Everybody knows their role, responsibility. Everyone's agile. Everyone is uh, adaptable to whatever can be thrown at them. No, the chances of that are slim and far between. So not finding something in an audit, it's like having a, an exercise or a test. If you don't find something wrong, well, you haven't really learned anything. You've just validated whatever you've put on paper somewhere. And that's it. Yeah. I like the term stress testing because it implies something, someone is under stress. If you're not under stress at all, how do you know how well you can perform? Yeah. You've got to be challenged. You've got to be, keep pushing things forward to know, uh, you know, every disasters don't unfold the way we want them to, right? That's why we call them disasters. Anything can happen. Anything can be thrown at us. And we have to be put under stress, even if we're exercising and, and testing. We need some sort of a stress level to challenge us to what's the next step? How do we make this better? I, I, I'm not a big fan of having a, some sort of a, a test and nothing happens, no findings, no, or having an audit with no findings, 
uh, you know, it's like, well, what was the benefit of that? It, you know, it might look good on paper to somebody, but it's not usually good for the organization or as using your example, you know, the people that are involved with it, they, they don't have the confidence. All they know is that they've got a box with a check mark in it. Yeah. It also doesn't allow you to improve or strengthen. Yeah. So uh, as I was sharing with you, I've been trying some new uh, equipment and technique for videos I shoot. And the first couple of people I, I showed it to, they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's fine. How do I learn? How do I get better if I just get a pat on the head? And if I do a tabletop exercise for 90 minutes and we come out of it and people are like, oh, that's great. Nobody learned anything. I would argue that you've wasted everyone's time. Where we've got to be careful, though, is what I've seen other organizations do is they swing it the other way, where they want to ensure that everyone in an exercise catastrophically fails early. And you I don't mean, think... You mean trying, trying to Purposely to... trying to break the participants so they can say, oh, look, I designed an exercise where 10 minutes in, everyone was crying and left the room. <laughs> but you don't learn anything from that either, right? If I have an exercise where an active shooter and a bomber and a fire and Godzilla hit our headquarters the day before we file our annual report, what does anyone really learn from that exercise? So again, I like that term you use, stress test. Stress, you know, bend, don't break is mm -hmm. very effective for truly measuring our capabilities and helping us grow and learn. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You don't want everyone in your, your, your test or anything like that, or even if you're being audited, to, to be uh, completely stressed out beyond belief and not learning anything because all they're going to do then is just try and whatever that gap was that was identified, just try and fix that without actually learning why it needs to be addressed or what they're addressing or how to address it. Just, just make that go away. And you're not really learning anything. And then when the next time you want to do it, they kind of don't want to be a part of it anymore. It's exactly. like, why? You make me feel bad about what I'm doing and how I'm contributing. Or you're, all you're constantly doing is pointing out things that are wrong. Where, how do I learn from that? You know, I've got to be able to see some progress, that things that I've learned that are good, not just learn from some of the things that are bad. Yeah, and I think the mistake a lot of our colleagues make, we do those scenarios in the extremes because they're easier to create and they're mm. easier to run. So on the simple side, oh, there was popcorn that caught on fire in the microwave in the break room. We had to evacuate the building for 45 seconds. Okay, I can run that exercise in three minutes. On the other side, the opposite extreme, there's a Sharknado that hits the building and the sharks are full of <laughs> ransomware. All right, everyone's stuck. I don't have to plan that easier, you know, either. But to have thoughtful audits or thoughtful exercises where you truly stress test, take a ton of time and resources uh, investment up front. Yeah, I agree. I think we've talked uh, enough about standards and regulations and uh, testing there. We'll it's bring it up. It's almost time for your, uh, your, your Thursday thoughts, you know? Yeah, should we do it early? Well, it's up to or you. Should we it's wait your, five minutes? It's your thoughts. Do you have five? Well, I don't know how much my thoughts are worth. So, 
Well, what else can we let, let let's talk about something else in five we, minutes? In five, something quick. We can't talk about anything in five minutes. I, I know we've never done. What do you got? Done that very well. Oh well, let's just talk about the uh, the the potential strikes that are happening here. You heard on the, the news while you were here, the uh, teachers in uh, Ontario may be going on strike again, which means uh, a lot of impact to families and students. And uh, because a lot of people are working from home, it's got to be really tough on families. Uh, you know, you're a parent. If you all of a sudden have your, your kids staying at home uh, when they've hopefully been going to school and you never know what's happening from one week to the next. How do you continue your operations? You know, oh, I can't attend that meeting anymore because I've got to help my four-year-old now get, get logged in and things like that. Yeah, so when we were talking about this last night and I was watching the news this morning, it got me thinking, what is your business continuity plan for strikes, either as a family or I think more importantly, an organization? You know, as, as we all know, I talk about it every day. I live in Florida. We have hurricanes. One of the biggest tipping points for when organizations decide to close business is not actually what uh, local emergency managers say. It's when the schools close. Because organizations know if the school is closed tomorrow and you're a parent and you're expecting your kid to be somewhere else and they're now at home, you have a higher likelihood of calling out from work. Mm. So it's this really interesting connection where most organizations, the tipping point for closing a business is not the hazard itself, but the school's closing. And for me, this is a very similar thing, whether it's a hurricane or a strike, you still have schools closing, right? So we we're reading, you know, that it, it looks like there's going to be another strike, uh, possible strike on Monday, on Monday here. here yeah. I think organizations should be looking at these strikes as potential BC risks, because if you're a an organization, a business based in Ontario on Monday, and the kids don't have school, somebody has to take care of them. Your absenteeism will increase. Mm -hmm. It will. So what are you doing? Are you thinking about that as a business continuity threat? Uh, I'd love to hear comments from people who are watching send it into us. Do you incorporate the threat of strikes? Especially it sounds like, you know, we, what we've seen in Ontario these are these have happened once or twice now. Yeah, they're, they're probably going to continue. Uh, reading through some of the notes here, I had they had agreed to some items, but then talks broke down, and then they agreed to some stuff, and then at the last minute, each party threw in some some caveats, which is leading to these strikes. Organizations should be prepared. You're you're gonna lose employees unexpectedly temporarily yep. because of these strikes. The uncertainty is uh, incredible. My my neighbors, uh, you know, she they both work during the day, and if their daughter can't go to school, she just turned six uh, a few days ago. Happy birthday, Elena! She just turned six. If she can't go to school, then one of them can't go to work. <clears throat> Uh, because one works, uh, you know, the jobs they have, they actually have to be on site. So it, it, there, there's so much uncertainty, the, the impacts that happen. And if you're, let's say, a bank even, and you've got uh, a key analyst or project manager who's 
really in the thick of things, working 10 hours a day because you've got a major project, then all of a sudden their six-year-old is staying at home. Well, who's going to want the attention? The six-year-old is. Uh, and they can't sit in front of a screen for six hours. Now your operations, your project are gonna, is going to suffer. You know, timelines or deliverables or whatever, or extra stress on that parent who, after the six-year-old goes to bed, suddenly finds themselves working for another four hours until one in the morning to try and catch up and then gets a few hours sleep to do it all over again. Now you've got staff burning out because of it. So what's the answer? <laughs> I want to say something about government and teachers, but um, I just wish the two would talk to each other. I, I just wish they would talk and listen. That That's really it, because I, I know people in the government. I know what they go through. I know many teachers. I know what they go through. I know many parents and what they go through. And I just wish people would talk to each other rather than uh, lobbying mandates at each other. Exactly. So certainly, you know, I think the only organizations I know that typically consider strikes as a business continuity impact are the ones that have organized, unionized uh, personnel and employees. But I think we need to start looking at in other parts of the world, including at home, these disruptions, these third party disruptions affect our organization. So if you are somewhere where, uh, I've, you know, we're, we've seen some large, uh, in, in California, there's been large walkouts with the University of California system, 45,000 people threatening to walk out. That's going to impact other businesses in the area, whether mm -hmm. they're tied to the university or not. Certainly in Ontario, whether you're part of the school system or not, these strikes are going to impact your workforce, your productivity, and they should be part of your uh, business continuity processes. Yeah, I knew some small businesses. The, the last time there was a big strike, mom and pop shops were suffering because um, a few of them were uh, didn't have the traffic anymore. So they ended up closing for a while because strikes were going on. And here's how they were making their livelihoods. And they had to close because something they weren't a part of was impacting them. Strikes. All right, Alex. So we have reached 1130. We did talk about that quickly, didn't we? I told you. <laughs> it is time for Thursday Thoughts. I've never done this live. I've never done this with someone uh, sitting or standing next to me or walking next to me. I've never done this in an exhibit hall. So let's see what happens. Uh, so for this week's Thursday Thoughts, I've been thinking about that you are not meant to take all risk alone. Sometimes you need a partner. I never would have dreamt up or thought or had the courage to do a live broadcast on Voice America with paid sponsors all by myself. Even just saying that right now sounds completely ridiculous to me. Uh, but Alex, you believed in me and you believed in this as much as you know. you believed in this idea, you believed in our partnership, you believed in me, you believed in our, our team of people that help us. And I needed that belief and I needed all aspects of that belief. And I needed you to go on this journey with me. Sometimes when you're taking risk, you need to ignore 
the doubters and the haters. And we've spent a lot of time talking about those people who will try to detract you or warn you in a negative sense. But other times, I think taking a risk by yourself, going solo on that journey is not the best course of action. So for those of you in the comments, whenever you see this, whenever you hear this, I would love to hear a risk or a risk journey that you took with a partner, with a colleague that you wouldn't have taken on your own. Alex, since you're here right with me, I will just ask you your thoughts. I completely agree with you because this is actually one of those journeys as well. I know you and I had conversations before where I said I kind of wanted to go a little bit more further than just doing um, the podcast, you know, on Voice America or, uh, and that moved into YouTube. And then I said, I wanted to go further than that too. Well, here we are, you know, the second time we're doing it. So yeah, sometimes you can't get what you need. No, no person is an island. You know, you need that connection, that network. And you and I had that synergy and same, some of the, the same goals to move forward and what we want to do with this. And I, so I agree. Yeah. You, sometimes you taking that risk alone, it might not be successful because you don't have that extra push, that extra support, that extra belief in you, you know, um, and sometimes it's better to have one person who believes in you rather than 10 people who are, are surrounded, surrounding you, you know, just criticizing you or, you know, as you, you use the word haters, um, you know, people that, people that are probably afraid themselves to, to, to take a risk. So, um, you know, have, getting your support to do this as well and you having my support to do this, this as well, I, I think, you know, it helps people move along. It builds your confidence too, you know, and you also get to build stronger networks too. You can't do it alone. And absolutely. So now we have, we have broadcast uh, at conferences in two countries mm -hmm. so far this year and looking forward to, 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 to seeing what happens next. I think we've got some lag in our sure. video. Oh, do we? Oh, we yeah, we had a little bit of lag. Hopefully everything is still okay. <laughs> so we've got uh, 10 minutes here, Alex. I'm going to jump down up. Oh, we've got some announcements happening. We have some announcements happening. Our video's got a little bit of a lag, but uh, Voice America is letting us know that the audio no is just fine. Audio. All right, so, so we perfect. move forward. We've got 10 minutes here. Uh, Alex, I'm going to jump down the list because I know how you love when I do things out of order. <laughs> but for a shorter segment, uh, so physical conferences are getting back into the swing of things. You and I have been to conferences this year in uh, collectively, I think Las Vegas, Orlando, Phoenix, Louisville, London, and uh, now Orlando. Uh, where are we? Today? Toronto, Ontario, <laughs> Toronto, Toronto, Ontario. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mississauga. If, Mississauga, I, if I say Toronto out here, they'll get mad at me. So we've been in we've been in uh, three countries, multiple time zones. So I feel like we've now gotten back into the swing of things of physical conference. So I'd love some of your thoughts on physical versus virtual conference, uh, kind of focused on the future. Where do you see the future of these conferences going? 
Well, I'll, I'll take a step back. And when I first started, I was kind of nervous in Louisville because it was the first face-to-face -face in quite a while coming out of COVID uh, or this, hopefully the start of coming out of COVID. And I was a little bit nervous. And I think uh, I mentioned that I had a bit of a panic attack in the airport when I was surrounded by a bunch of people wanting to get on the plane. And that was the first time in two and a half years that I was that close to people. So, um, but I don't have that feeling now. So I think, and I think a lot of people don't have that now um, because there's been a good turnout here. There was a, a fair turnout in Louisville. Um, there was a, a, a good turnout at BCI for what they plan to do. The in-person sold out, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly. So I think the future holds more and more face-to-face, -face, barring, of course, some terrible outbreak or something that, that happens. But uh, I think the future, gradually, the, there are going to get bigger, more face-to-face -face, uh, instances. Uh, and, but I, th I don't think the virtual part is going to go away because I think the virtual part of conferences um, whether it be this one or any other one, allow some people who wouldn't be able to travel, you know, let's say someone from uh, Australia can't travel to come here, but they may still be able to participate at a smaller fee and still learn some new skills and meet some new people on, you know, on a virtual basis and hear some new new talks. So I think that's, it'll, we'll focus more on in-person, but I don't think the virtual is going to go away. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's going to take a long time for physical conferences to get back to the size they were in 2019. And I don't think it'll be people's concerns or reluctance around travel. What I'm seeing is a lot of organizations the last three years, the money that they've spent on travel has been zero. And once you take a line item in a budget down to zero, it's very hard <laughs> to, to get, get it, it the next year. As we all know, if, uh, any organization you work in, uh, if you're a department head or lead a team, you have your budget, you can negotiate on it. It's always easier to keep things in the budget or slightly increase them than to add. And I've noticed that a lot of conferences this year, I've heard from people who reached out to me and said, hey, I wanted to come to that conference. I didn't have any budget. So I think it'll be several years, if maybe ever, before people come back fully. Because admittedly, sending a representative to a conference is a very expensive mm -hmm. endeavor when you factor the time loss, the opportunity cost, travel, uh, everything. We know the benefits. Chloe mentioned them earlier. We both talked about there's things that happen face-to-face -face that do not happen. Yeah, virtually. They don't. Uh, people who do solely virtual conferences say that everything's the same. It's not. There are differences. But the biggest driver I'm seeing right now is financially. Uh, I do agree with you that I do expect virtual conferences to continue for several reasons. One, because of that financial burden. If I'm at a small organization or a small nonprofit and historically all in, it would take four to $5,000 of you know, resources to attend. And virtually it's $300. It's a very big difference. Um, if I'm a caregiver for 
my parents or my children or my pets and you want me to go away for five days. How do I do that versus I'm at home every night? So I think you're going to see that that remote uh, group stay uh, at a higher number. And I love it because I've attended some conferences the last few years where I've met people from countries that I never would have met otherwise. Yeah. I've met um, more people in our profession from Africa the last three years than I ever have the 10 years before that. And I think it's good for those people, but it's also good for me to meet the, you know, the more people you can meet in our profession or in the world with different worldviews, with different perspectives, with different goals, with different strengths, the better you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes conferences better. The more diverse you can have speakers and attendees. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to learn and meet people from around the world. So I expect, I expect, the physical conferences not to get back to the numbers they were for a while. I expect the virtual uh, attendees to stay steady. What are your thoughts? We've been to a few now. What about the hybrid conference? Where do you see those going? So I got some people in person, well, how some are you, people yeah, at home. Are they different sessions though? Well, you know, let's, the, let's talk about you're now conference king for a day. <laughs> what would you do with hybrid? Well, there, there's different ways. I, I, I've seen situations where a hybrid conference has an agenda for in-person mm -hmm. and a separate agenda for virtual where everything is filmed and it, it's almost creating two conferences within one, you know, and two different audiences. I think the hybrid, if I had a hybrid, it would be, let's say, we'll use CRT because we're here. Yes, we are. Um, we're you've got your in-person part, you've got your uh, continuity stuff, your emergency management sections. But the virtual side of it is people can log in and see those sessions real time. So that, you know, you, you may be standing and talking in front of a hundred people, but there's another hundred that are actually behind the camera at the back of the hall. So they're experiencing, they're a part of it and can ask questions the same way. That's the way I would like to see a hybrid go not separating them the you know, virtual audience that's all over here in-person audience sessions over there and not bringing them together i, I kind of like the idea of being able to attend some sessions you know uh, across the board that's the way i would like to see it so you know one thing i think about i've worked uh for and with vendors in the, in the past and one thing i struggle with with hybrid and virtual is when we look at our sponsors, our exhibitors, our advertisers, uh, if you only attend conferences, you may not realize how vital sponsors and exhibitors are mm. to, yeah. to organizing a conference, to putting on a conference, and to defraying large parts of the cost of conferences. These conferences are very expensive to put on. And if the only source of revenue for a conference organizer is attendees, you would probably see the registration fees triple, if not quadruple. So a successful True. conference needs a balance between sponsors and exhibitors and attendees. And I haven't seen a lot of conferences figure out yet how to maximize and effectively use virtual conference 
sponsors and exhibitors. And that has nothing to do with the conference organizers. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Dan Joyce here and others we work with do phenomenal jobs. I think it comes back to the attendees themselves. We have seen we're in the exhibit hall today and yesterday for a reason. This is the nexus and hub yep, of the, the hub. conference. Yeah. People come in here to network, to um, eat, to meet exhibitors, to get their swag, to talk to people. I'm on the vendor side, the same situation in a virtual booth. I've been in several virtual booths the last three years. Uh, and it's not the same thing. People don't pop into a virtual booth like they do physical. And I've seen many different situations where it's chat only, where it's camera, where it's this, where it's that. There's just something about people psychologically going into a virtual booth. It feels different. The numbers are, are lower. Um, and so we need to figure out that aspect of the virtual and hybrid conferences give us incredible opportunities for the participants are very important. How do we balance that for yeah. our sponsors? We're wrapping up the second hour of our broadcast here, Alex. This hour was brought to us by our good friends at Stone Road, uh, a firm that aims to reduce corporate suffering by helping companies identify, prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. Thank you, Stone Road. And I just wanted to add to, to what you were saying. Um, I, I think it'll still be a little while before we get that perfect mix. You know, uh, I know what I suggested I would like to see, but you're right about vendors and exhibitors. It's, it's, we're still feeling that out yet. And I think it's still going to be another year or two, maybe even longer, who knows, um, depending on the events of how we really work through that to, to, so that everyone benefits, exhibitors, attendees, and the, the uh, organizers. So, so James, thanks again for a uh, the second hour or no, that was our third. No, second hour. Second hour. Second hour. What oh, time is it? Wow, I'm I'm way out of it here. So we're going to take a quick 15 minute break, and we will be right back.